Good afternoon, everybody. Unfortunately, our speaker, David Speranzi, was not able to travel to the UK today, but we have an exceptional reader. David very kindly sent the paper and a rich PowerPoint in advance, and Professor Nigel Wilson will read it for us. Nigel, the word to you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, David asks uh, uh, me to say on his behalf that he is very grateful and honored for the invitation to come here. He apologizes for his absence and will come to the point of his paper at once. In the year 1900, Robert Proctor published The Printing of Greek in the 15th Century for the Bibliographical Society in Oxford. Among the incunabula which he studied, there were the ones by the Cretan Demetrius Demilas. At the time, very little was known of him. Together with Dionigi Paravicino, <coughs> Demilas had been in charge of the printing of the first ever book entirely in Greek to be printed in Italy, the Epitome by Constantine Lascaris, which was published in Milan on the 30th of January, 1476. Damilas had written the preface in Greek and in Latin. He had also designed the typeface using his own writing as a model, as I have recently demonstrated in a paper. Demetrius Perivicino and their volume were praised in a Latin epigram by Angelo Poliziano. In 1488, in Florence, Damilas had been involved in the Editio Princeps of Homer, the printing of the volume had been funded by the brothers Bernardus and Nerius Nerlius. The text had been edited by the Athenian Demetrius Calcondilas, and Damilas had provided his labor in Greek ponos and skill dexiotes. This is all that Proctor knew about him. <coughs> Later, in 1933, once again in Oxford and for the Bibliographical Society, Eka Lobel published the Greek manuscripts of Aristotle's Poetics. The book also contains nine short appendices, one of which is entitled The Writer of Laurentianus 60.14. Starting from this copy of the Poetics, which had been owned and annotated by Poliziano, Lobel was able to isolate for the first time the figure of an anonymous Byzantine copyist who had been active in Florence in the 15th century. Lobel attributed to him two Laurentian manuscripts, one codex in Paris and three manuscripts preserved in Oxford in the Bodleian Library. Some of them <clears throat> bear the coat of arms of the Medici and they were illuminated by excellent Tuscan artists. Here you can see uh, a fine Strabo and a wonderful Homer, which I refer to later in this paper. Aubrey Diller, later nicknamed Lobel's anonymous copyist, Librarius Florentinus, and Dieter Halfinger considerably increased the list of his codices. In 1977, the manuscripts attributed to this librarius were almost 80 in number, 
so he could be considered one of the most prolific Byzantine scribes of the last quarter of the 15th century. None of his codices is signed, and none of them contains an indication of the date or of the place where the copy was made. It was then that in a brilliant study, Paul Canard was able to put together the two halves of the diptych. That is, he demonstrated that the printer studied by Proctor and the Librarius Florentinus, first identified by Lobel, were the same person. Demetrius Demilas was, at the same time, one of the pioneers of Greek typography and one of the most refined amanuenses in the long twilight of handwritten books. Canard thus had a lot more biographical material on him than Proctor. Demetrius was the brother of Antonius, who worked as a manuscript copyist and notary in Candia. The earliest information on him was still the printing of the Constantine Lascaris in Milan in 1476. Sometime before 1484, Damilas was living in Florence. He worked as a copyist with Demetrius Calcondilas, who appreciated his work very much indeed. Very much. Uh, indeed, several of his manuscripts contain marginal corrections by Calcondilas. In 1488, Damilas was involved in the printing of the Homer, collaborating once again with Calcondilas. The latter moved from Florence to Milan at the end of 1491. In 1490, Damilas was already in Rome. For 14 years, from 1490 to 1504, his name appears in the loan records of the Vatican Library. He borrowed manuscripts of which he made elegant copies for important clients. In 1506, Pope Julius II issued a motu proprio in favour of Damilas, in which he granted him six gold ducats per month to transcribe codices <coughs> and to restore manuscripts for the papal library. He was the first scriptor graecus of the Vatican Library. This is the last piece of information we have about him. Um, uh, it is evident that it is thanks to Canard that the figure of the copyist and printer Damilas finally emerged from the shadows. But as Canard wrote, May la démonstration revêt un intérêt plus général, elle illustre la manière dont l'histoire des manuscrits et l'histoire des textes s'éclaire et s'appuie mutuellement. Today, I would like to add a detail to Damelaus's biography. I will establish the exact date at which he moved from Milan to Florence. But most importantly, by doing so, I will demonstrate that not only do the history of manuscripts and the history of texts sustain one another, as Canard wrote, but this is, this is also true for the history of manuscripts, the history of printed books, and history in general. The one casts light on the other. Closely connected with each other, manuscripts, incunabula, and documentary sources make it possible to provide a uniform framework and to eliminate major and minor inconsistencies. In this paper I will first establish the exact date 
of an undated letter which mentions Demilas. The manuscripts of Strabo and Homer, which I mentioned earlier, will also be dated with certainty. Then I will demonstrate that Demilas did not actually take part in the printing of some texts which have been attributed to him by other scholars. Finally, based on solid evidence, I will describe the history of the typeface of the Lascaris volume and of the Editio Princeps of Homer. <coughs> evidence shows that in 1476, Damilas was in Milan. The information on him used so far comes from a well-known letter written in Greek which Demetrius Calcondilas sent from Florence to Giovanni Lorenzi, his former pupil at the Studium Patavinum. At the time, Lorenzi lived in Rome, where he was an associate of Cardinal Marco Barbo. In this letter, Calcondilas asks Lorenzi to lend him a codex of Strabo's geography. A very powerful client, Lorenzo de' Medici, has commissioned from him a manuscript of this author. Calcondilas already has two volumes of the geography, which he had inherited from Theodore Gaza, who had died in Polycastro in 1476. One of these copies has a lot of imperfections, so he needs another one to improve the text. After collating Gaza's codices with Lorenzi's, he will commission Damilas to make a copy. As you know, he writes to Lorenzi, there is here Demetrius of Crete, a calligrapher inferior to none, who surpasses everyone in accuracy. The letter is dated in Greek, Boedromionos Tetarte Epideca, which is the 14th of August, um, with no indication of the year. Therefore, there is no certain date for Damilas' stay in Florence, and most scholars date the letter between 1484 and 86, while some date it instead between 1478 and 9. Later in this paper, I will explain the reasons for these hypotheses, as well as my own opinion. However, it is first necessary to note that establishing the exact date on which Damilas moved from Milan to Florence is not just a matter for curious scholars. Choosing one option over the other has repercussions for the date of at least two well-known manuscripts, as well as the history of illumination and the date of some printed editions. The first codex is the Strabo, commissioned by Lorenzo il Magnifico. The issue is quite simple, and it doesn't have major consequences. If the letter to Lorenzi was written between 1484 and 86, the manuscript was copied shortly afterwards, in the mid-1480s. If the letter is dated between 1478 and 9, the codex was copied at the end of the 1470s. The situation is more complex for the second manuscript, the Homer. In the loan records of the Medici private library, 
which are preserved in the Archivio di Stato in Florence, there is a note stating that on the 24th of October, 1480, Pandolfo Collinuccio borrowed a, quote, wonderful and new Homer, unquote, which had previously belonged to the brother of Lorenzo the Magnificent, Giuliano, who had been killed in the Patsy conspiracy on April the 26th, 1478. Um, without taking the uncertainties surrounding Damilas's activities into account, Sebastiano Gentile suggested that the codex which had belonged to Giuliano could be the one transcribed by Damilas. In the decoration of the Homer, some letters of Giuliano's name G and L are repeated <coughs> several times. Therefore, Damilas' copy of the Homer would be the first Greek codex to be documented by an inventory note of the Medici private library. Gentile's hypothesis has been accepted by some art historians. In particular, Giovanna Lazzi has provided an interesting iconographic interpretation of the illuminations. She has explained the decoration of the codex by making reference to the famous Giostra in which Giuliano took part in 1475 and which was celebrated by Angelo Poliziano in the Stanze. The shield with the coat of arms of the Medici may be a reference to the one decorated with precious stones which was used by Giuliano on that occasion. Medusa's head would be a reference to the one portrayed on his banner. The fire, which appears everywhere in the decorations and in the candelabra trees, may be a twofold allusion. The flames which enveloped Troy become the ones of the love for Simonetta Vespucci, which the young Giuliano de' Medici elevated into pure intellectual contemplation. The illuminations of the Homer have been attributed to the Florentine Francesco Rosselli and to an anonymous artist who has been named by art historians the collaborator of the Medici Iliad. His biographers <coughs> maintain that he worked with Rosselli only after the latter came back from Hungary in 1485, where he had worked at the court of King Matthias Corvinus. In this period, the two artists produced two wonderful gems of 15th century calligraphy and illumination, the Books of Hours, commissioned, commissioned by Lorenzo de' Medici for his daughters Lucrezia and Luisa. The inconsistencies are clear. On the one hand, if Damilas had moved from Milan to Florence in the mid-1480s, Gentile's historical reconstruction and Lazzi's iconographic interpretation would clearly be refuted. Giuliano de' Medici was murdered in 1478. If Damilas had arrived in Tuscany around 1484, he wouldn't have had the time to make any manuscript for him, and the iconography of the Codex wouldn't have any connection to Giuliano and to his joust of 1475. 
On the other hand, if Damilas had moved from Milan to Florence before 1478, the biographical reconstruction of the collaborator of the Medici Iliad would be refuted. Indeed, he would have worked with Rosselli well before 1485. I will now set aside the Strabo of the Homer for a moment, and I will move from manuscripts to printed books and from Florence to Milan. After the Constantine Lascaris, the history of Greek typography in Milan continues with the volumes published by the humanist, humanist Bonus Accursius of Pisa. No later than 1478, Accursius printed the Greek-Latin lexicon by the Carmelite Johannes Crastonus. A few months later, he published Aesop's Fables with a Latin translation about 1478. Accursius's publishing program was very different from that of Damilas in the Lascaris volume. While the latter is entirely in Greek, the Crustonus and the Aesop are supplemented by a Latin version. In my opinion, the Latin version made the texts accessible to a wider audience, thus making it easier to sell them. Yet, as observed by Proctor already, the first two of Accursius's volumes had been printed with the same type used by Damilas for the Lascaris volume. Some letters, you could see them indicated with a red circle, had been lost, and they were not replaced. Another, which had also been lost, was instead replaced. You can see it indicated with a black circle. Is this working all right? Yeah. Yes, good. Um, um, however, it was not recast in the same matrix which had been used to create it the first time. A new punch was engraved and a new matrix was made. The Greek-Latin lexicon and Aesop's fables were followed by four volumes. The Greek-Latin lexicon by Crostonus, circa 1480. The De Acentibus by Sassolo da Prato, about 1480. Theocritus' idols with Hesiod's works and days, same date again. And the Greek-Latin Psalter, 20th September, 1481. The Greek type of these four incunabula is similar to that of the uh, 1476 volume, but it is larger with wider spaces between the letters. The type was completely renewed, an entirely new set of punches was engraved, new matrices were created, and new characters were cast. Konstantinos Staikos has claimed that Demiras was involved in the making of all the editions of Bonus Accursius, which I have mentioned. His argument can be summarized as follows. Accursius needed not only the Greek characters, but also someone who knew how to compose them. For his Greek texts, Accursius needed a Greek printer or someone with a good working knowledge of Greek. The conclusion to be drawn from all this is that the only printer capable of setting the type for the Greek texts in Accursius's publishing program 
was Demetrius Demilas. However, there remain two unclear aspects. Stikos was not able to explain why in the Greek-Latin lexicon and in Aesop's fables the damaged characters had been cast with new matrices. He also didn't explain why for the ensuing four incunabula an entirely new set of type had been created. Where were the matrices of the Lascaris? Why weren't they reused? Our Greek colleague seems to attach little importance to this detail. He writes, there must have been other reasons for cutting a new set of Greek characters in the same style, but larger than the old founts. Later I will try to solve this issue as well. For the time being, I will make an obvious point. It is clear that if Damilas had moved from Milan to Florence in 1477, and not in 1484, Stikos's argument, which is already weak, would be completely refuted. As you can see, the questions are piling up, so it is now appropriate to sum them up. When was the Strabo copied for Lorenzo? In the late 1470s or the early 1480s? Was the Medici Iliad really made for the young and unfortunate Giuliano? Was its iconography really inspired by the Jostra of 1475? Did the collaborator of the Medici Iliad work with Francesco Rosselli only after 1485, when the latter came back from Hungary? Was Dimitris Damilas involved in Bonus Accursius's publishing program? Why were a new punch and matrix created for the damaged character in Crastonus's Greek-Latin lexicon and in Aesop's fables. Why was an entirely new set of punches and matrices created for Theocritus's idyls and for the other Accursius volumes? One thing is certain, the key to solve all these problems is to establish the date on which Damilas moved from Milan to Florence. It is now appropriate to go back to the letter which Demetrius Calcondilas wrote to Giovanni Lorenzi when Damilas had recently arrived in Florence. Um, the epistle was sent from Florence to Rome on the 14th of August. But of which year? Several arguments have been made to date it. <clears throat> its first publisher, Hippolyte Noiret, believed that the letter had been written in 1485, 86 or 87. Indeed, in the manuscript which contains it, it is followed by an epistle which Calcondinas wrote to Lorenzi on the 4th of January, 1488, or 1489, according to the Florentine calendar, which followed the style of the Incarnation. According to the French scholar, the two letters could not be too distant in time. 
Noiret's hypothesis was examined by Aubrey Diller. At the beginning of the letter, Calcondilas writes to Lorenzi that a war had interfered with their correspondence by slowing it down. According to Diller, this may have been the Guerra di Ferrara, which ended on the 7th of August 1484, or the Conjura dei Baroni, which ended on the 11th of August 1486, with the decisive defeat of the opponents of Aragon. The Guerra di Ferrara took place mainly in the Val Padana, while the Conjura dei Baroni affected the Kingdom of Aragon. How could the two events have slowed down a correspondence between Florence and Rome? Dilla did not address this issue, and he also neglected the fact that, in the meantime, Calcondinas's letter had been studied by Pio Paschini. The latter observed that Calcondilas makes a very accurate use of titles when addressing his correspondent and when, when mentioning someone in the letter, always making reference to the title that they had at the time in the Roman Curia. He calls Lorenzi via utriusque juris peritissimus and scriptor apostolicus. In 1484, Lorenzi became apostolic secretary as opposed to scriptor. So the epistle can hardly have been written after this date. Furthermore, Demetrius repeatedly mentions Lodovico Podocatharus, simply calling him Lodovicos Hocuprios, which means Ludovico of Cyprus. Podocatharus was appointed Bishop of Carpaccio in 1483. If the letter had been written after this date, Demetrius would have certainly used this title to refer to him. Paschini also had a different view on the war, which slowed down the correspondence between Calcondilas and Lorenzi. It must undoubtedly have been the conflict which broke out after the Patsy conspiracy, which ended at the beginning of 1480. Therefore, the letter of 14 August must have been written in 1478 or 79. I would like to add another consideration to Paschini's deductions. In the letter of the 4th of January 1489, Calcondilas states that Demetrios Hocres Damila had been living with him, Flor with him in Florence for a long time. Instead, in the letter of the 14th of August, he writes, As you know, there is here Demetrius of Crete. So his presence in town was then recent, still relatively fresh news. Therefore, Noiret was wrong to believe that the two letters were close in time. This all seems to hint that the letter of 14 August was written either in 1478 or 79, instead of between 1484 and 6. In my opinion, this is the most plausible interpretation, but it obviously only provides a terminus antiquem for Damilas's arrival in Florence and not its exact date. Yet this date exists. It is almost hidden 
in a very well-known document, which has never been used for this purpose, a letter which Francesco Filelfo wrote in Greek to Dimitrios Kalkondilas on the 30th of May, 1477. At the time, Filelfo was in Milan, while Kalkondilas lived in Florence. The epistle, which is very long, is mostly about the Turks. At the end of the letter, Philelpha mentions Demetrius of Crete, that is, Demetrius Damilas. And he says, Write to me about yourself and your life, not only about your health, but also about your lot. Lastly, give my regards to the most noble Lorenzo de' Medici. The glory of his virtue will not be obscured by the envy of the wicked, nor will it fade over time. I recommend to you the good Demetrius of Crete, and above all, to take care of the muses. Take care, my good friend, from Milan on the third day before the calends of June in the year 1477 since the birth of Christ. It is important to pay attention to the expression in Greek, sunhistemi soi, meaning I recommend to you. This is not just a generic recommendation. In my opinion, these words clearly indicate that Demetrius of Crete was the bearer of the letter. He was traveling from the place where the sender lived to the one where the recipient lived, which is where he was about to stay for a long time. This interpretation, which I am presenting for the first time today, is corroborated by at least another letter in Greek by Philelpho, which is more explicit. In 1454, Philelpho writes to Thomas of Corone, the Greek physician of Charles VII of the House of Valois, and he recommends, sunistemi, a young Greek, Johannes Gavras, to his care. And he says, the bearer of this letter, Johannes Gavras, is a young Greek from New Rome. His misfortune certainly deserves pity. Indeed, even if he seems to be free, he is a slave of the Turks. His is the worst of slavery. His parents are kept in chains by those miscreants. This is why I recommend you, this young boy, so that, through your advice and entreaties, you can persuade the great King of France, Charles, to be not only understanding, but also magnanimous with him, as he is accustomed to be from Milan on 10 November 1454. In 1454, Philelpha recommends Johannes Gavras to Thomas of Coroni. Johannes Gavras is bringing his letter to Thomas. The Greek says, ho apodus soi ten epistolein. And by November 1454, he will have completed his journey from Milan to France. In 1477, Philelpha recommends Demetrius of Crete to Demetrius Calcondilas. It can be assumed that Demetrius of Crete brought his letter to Calcondilas and that by the end of May 1477 he would have completed his journey from Milan to Florence. At the beginning of June 1477, Demetrius Damilas arrived in Florence and he stayed there. Establishing this date now makes it possible to solve several issues. I would like to start with the letter which Calcondilas wrote to Lorenzi. Pio Paschini was right 
Noiret and Dilla were wrong. The letter was sent from Florence to Rome in 1478 or 9. At the time, Giovanni Lorenzi was only scriptor apostolicus and not yet apostolic secretary. Lodovico Podocatharus had not yet been appointed Bishop of Capaccio. The war which had slowed down the correspondence between the two friends was the one that followed the Patsy conspiracy. Demetrius Damilas had been staying in Calcondilas's house since June 1477, that is for the time for some time, but not too long. As you know, there is here Demetrius of Crete, he says. The Strabo, which belonged to Lorenzo de' Medici, can be dated with certainty to the late 1470s, and it is now possible to trace its origins. Theodore Garza had died in Basilicata in Policastro in 1476. In 1477, his books, including the two volumes of the geography, arrived in Florence, where his heir, Demetrius Calcondilas, lived. Someone in the entourage of Lorenzo de' Medici must have noticed these volumes, which had just arrived in town. Wasting no time, Lorenzo commissioned a copy from Calcondilas. The Homer can also be dated with certainty. Indeed, there is no doubt left. The Codex was made for Giuliano de' Medici. It is the wonderful and new Homer described in the loan records of the Medici private library. Damilas had arrived in Florence in June 1477. Giuliano died in April 1478. Almost immediately after his arrival in town, the Cretan copyist began to work on the making of the Homer. It had to be a codex worthy of the culture and glory of the young man who had won the Jostra of 75, and of the young man who had been overwhelmed by the love of, uh, for Simonetta. Giovanni Lazzi's iconographic interpretation is at least historically plausible. The volume was decorated by Francesco Rosselli and by the collaborator of the Medici Iliad. Art historians will have to rewrite his biography. It is hard to believe that this anonymous artist only worked in Rosselli's studio after the latter came back from Hungary in 1485. Stikos's reconstruction uh, concerning Bonus Accursius Incunabula should also be revised. Having left Milan in 1477, Demetrius Demilas cannot have taken part in their making. Yet it is now possible to understand the history of the typefaces, which is also the history of Demilas's typefaces. Once in Milan, Demetrius had decided to try his hand at printing, which was something new at the time. He had engraved the punches, made the matrices, and cast the characters for the Lascaris. It can be supposed that the first book, entirely in Greek, was a commercial failure. Otherwise, why decide to leave Milan immediately and move to Florence, and not to print any other book? Why leave everything and look for another place to work as a copyist? In Milan, there was Bonus Accursius, who wanted to sell in the same market Greek-Latin <coughs> volumes rather than books entirely written in Greek, because more people would be willing uh, to buy them. 
Before leaving for Florence, Demetrius may have needed some money, so he may have sold the characters to the type to Accursius, but only the type, not the punches and the matrices. Some were in bad condition or had been lost, so Accursius had to give up the idea of using them, or in other cases he had to create a new punch and a new matrix. After printing the Greek-Latin lexicon by Crostonus and Aesop's fables, the whole set was damaged, so Accursius had to create new punches and new matrices. Why? The answer to the question left unanswered by Stikos is now obvious. Damilas's punches and matrices were no longer in Milan. Demetrius had taken them with him when travelling to Florence in May 1477. Punches and matrices were key tools for the work of a printer. After the Lascaris and its failure, Damilas had to give up the new job that had brought him far from his homeland. He would go back to the more traditional job as copyist and use his quill to work for the Medici. We can only imagine what he was thinking about while travelling to Florence. He would copy books by hand, just as his brother did in Crete. But when an opportunity arose, the punches and matrices would allow him to pursue once again the dream of the Ars Artificialiter Scribendi. That is exactly what happened in the mid-1480s. Demetrius took the punches and matrices out of their boxes to create the type for the Editio Precepts of Homer. He provided his ponos, the characters, and his dexiotes, ability to combine them, for the printing of a book that marked an era. In conclusion, I hope that I haven't bored you and that I have been able to demonstrate at least one thing. The history of manuscripts, the history of printed books, and history in general sustain one another. The one cannot do without the other. The only way to solve inconsistencies is to cross disciplinary boundaries. The dates of the letters help us establish the dates of the manuscripts. The lives of copyists are connected with those of their clients, of scholars, illuminators and printers. The iconography of illuminations can be explained. The changes in typefaces in books can be understood. Maybe by doing so we can even capture the dreams of human beings. After all, what are books? As Giovanni Bilanovic wrote, books are human beings. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>